Corinthians chapter 6, as we continue our study through the New Testament, and currently in 1 Corinthians, and Lord willing, we'll just continue going all the way through, unless the Lord tarries, and if he tarries, or he comes back and takes us, that's fine. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20, we'll finish the chapter this morning, the titles, Glorify God in Body and Spirit. The increasing lawsuits that we studied in verses 1 through 8, the increasing lawsuits among Christians was really a sign of spiritual weakening in the church. And so Paul jumped on it right away. He saw this spiritual weakening of the church, and he didn't wait any longer. He listed their spiritual failures. And then he kind of backed off the accusation reminding them of where they had come from and their spiritual heritage. So let's begin with verses 9 through 11 as Paul gives this serious warning. And he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. He says, Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul insists here that they already knew the right way to live. They knew, or they should have known, that unrighteousness was sin. And that it says here that the unrighteous will not, notice, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And remember, the the unrighteous are those that were practicing these particular sins that he mentioned here in verses 9 through 11. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. The The word unrighteous put their behavior on the same level with unbelievers. But here the word means their immorality in general. That is, those who offend God and man by committing different kinds of sins. Paul's warning included a harsh warning. He said, do not be deceived. You see, there was a lot of sexual permissiveness going on in Corinth. And it was a permissive society with a philosophy a lot like ours today. Sex is a normal physical function. So the thought was, why don't you do what you want? Paul, Paul pointed out that God created sex when he made the first man and the first woman. So God has the right to tell us how to use it. The Bible is the owner's manual and it must be obeyed. And there were seducing opinions going around leading people astray and usually by persuasion or false promises that caused the people's sense of right and wrong to be silenced and then they would carry out these sins but to make sure that Paul made himself totally clear he gives a list of these sins here and these sins that he mentioned in verses 9 through 11 they seem to have been particular temptations to the Corinthians but any of these sins would break a man's fellowship in Christ And they would disqualify him as an heir to the kingdom of God. So this list of ten sins are examples of some specific sins. 
But it's not a complete list of sins. And he begins there with fornicators. He says, fornicators shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators speaks of sexual immorality in general, and it's by unmarried people in particular. Scripture condemns it. And the sin is typical in our society today. It's encouraged even, and it's seen as normal, as no big deal. But fornication in any way and of any kind is absolutely wrong in God's sight. And it should be absolutely wrong to you, God's people. Now, those who regularly practice and defend fornication, they cannot possibly belong to God. Because the heirs of his kingdom do not regularly practice and defend sexual immorality. Paul says in Romans 7, 15 through 25, it's evil. Secondly, he says, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, idolaters refers to those who worship any false gods and false systems. Not just those who bow down to images. Our society is fascinated by many false religions and cults today. And, and there's no belief or, or no claim or practice that seems to be too bizarre, you know, to, to get a following. Then he says, adulterers shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Adulterers refer specifically to married people who indulge in sex outside of their marriage. Outside of their marriage relationship. Because marriage is sacred, adultery is an especially wicked sin in God's sight. And in addition to that, it corrupts the adulterers themselves. It also corrupts the family. It defiles the unique God-established relationship between husband and wife. And it unavoidably brings harm to their children. And those are just some of the initial effects that adultery um, places upon families, relationships. Then he goes on to say that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. This comes from the word effeminate. Effeminate means soft ones. These are men and boys who allow themselves to to be misused as if they were women. That is, they were the passive homosexuals. And it refers to those who exchange and misrepresent normal male-female sexual roles and relations, including transgender, homosexuality, bisexuality, and other sexual misrepresentations. They're all included here. God's one-of-a-kind creation, that is, those created in his own image, were men and women, or were male and female. Genesis 1.27, it says God created them male and female. And the Lord strictly forbids the two roles to be blurred, much less exchanged. Sodomites shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These were abusers of themselves with mankind. These represent men who initiate homosexual practices. The problem is, is that confusion of sex roles is especially evil because it attacks God's design. It attacks the family. And what happens when men, women, and children that do this, that is, they're they're making a statement that God did not know what he was doing when he created them, that he made a mistake. So you see, it corrupts the biblical plan for the family, including the word of God. And God's standards also for authority and submission within the family are corrupted. And as a result, it hinders passing on righteousness from one generation to the next. 
And the most, God, uh, the most ungodly societies of history have been plagued by changing the sex roles. And we know that Satan is so intent on destroying the family. He's, in, he's intent on destroying the image of God and God's word. Now, churches who in the name of love defend homosexuality and condone homosexual pastors, marriages and congregations, they not only misrepresent God's standards of morality, but they encourage their members to continue in the sin. So encouraging sin has no part in true love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. So true love for others does not mean doing for them what they want to do, but doing for them what God wants. John said in 1 John 5, 2 through 3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Condoning sin of any kind, whatever it is, it's never an act of love either for God or for those whose, whose sins we're condoning. And then he says, um, thieves and covetous. They will, uh, they will never, those who are covetous and, and, and thieves, they will, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, thieves and covetous, they share the same basic idea, which is the sin of greed. You see, the covetous person wants what belongs to others. The thief actually takes it. Greed is an act of selfishness. And like all selfishness, it's never satisfied. The greedy person wants more and more and more. And, and even today, it, it's hard to find a person, even Christians, even a Christian who's satisfied with what he makes and with what he has. And yet Paul said in Hebrews thirteen five, let your conduct be with covetous, uh, without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. Whatever God's given us. Be content with that, Paul says. Greed is not, or the writer of Hebrews anyway. Greed is not to be described. It's not to be found among believers. It has no place in the Christian life. Again, we are to be content with that which we have. What God has given us. Then it says, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like the other sins listed here. It's almost inevitably found to be a serious problem where God's name and word are ignored or despised. Alcoholism today is spreading even to the elementary kids. Preteens and teenage alcoholics are becoming more and more common. It's the same for older people. And we know, we know the damage that alcohol does to people. We know what it does to, to relationships. We know what it does to families. It's beyond measure. We see, the, we see the, 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 the accidents behind the wheel of those that, that are drunk. You know, killing innocent people because, again, of, the, of drunkenness. Relationships. You know, husbands and wives destroyed because of alcohol. Families, the kids. Just, it just, again, the, the effect is beyond measure. Revilers, Paul said, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, revilers are those who destroy and damage others with their tongues. And man, we see a lot of that going on today. We see it in, in the politics so much. You know, all the mudslinging and, and all the accusations and all the things that, that you know, are said that, that the others do. 
um, just trying to destroy reputations and, and, and careers. And again, damage is done. There's a lot of damage done with, with our tongues. You know, we wound with our words. We cut with our words. And God does not consider their sin to be lightweight, revilers. Because again, the Bible says that from the abundance of, a, of the heart, the mouth does speak. You see, our heart is a seedbed of truth. You know, when things come out of our mouth, it's not like, oh, where did that come from? Or, or, or you know, oh, I'm just joking and you know, I didn't mean that. Well, you know what? It came from somewhere. It just didn't pop right out with any thought or any idea. The, the, the heart is the seedbed of truth. And so, again, these things aren't lightweight when they come out of our mouth. Because our, our hearts, because hearts that are filled with hate, you know, they cause, they cause misery and pain and despair in the, in the lives of those who are attacked by the tongue. Then Paul said extortioners or swindlers are, uh, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Extortioners are swindlers. Or they're thieves who steal indirectly. They take an unfair advantage of others to fill their own pockets. So extortioners, embezzlers, con men... People who sell phony merchandise and services, false advertisers, and many other kinds of swindlers are common. They're as common today as they were in Paul's day. Paul says straight out that these kinds of people, those of the sins that are practiced in these verses, these ten sins, he says they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And there's no mistaking what Paul said. The Corinthians may have thought that they were saved by the simple fact that they made an open profession by being publicly baptized. And and a lot of people think because they've been baptized, that saves them, that that their sins are forgiven. But there must be confession of sin and there must be a receiving of Christ. And then baptism is just an outward expression of an inward change. All of these sins shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the good news is, these people can be born again. They, be, they can become children of God, and they can become heirs of God. And they also can inherit the kingdom of God. But they can't be both. They can't be both sinners controlled by any of the above sins, and at the same time, heirs of God's kingdom. It, it can't happen. And Paul warns them, as James does, that faith without works is dead. Privileges without holiness are nullified. That they don't, they don't count for anything. Now, this is pretty strong medicine here. But as usual, Paul encourages them by reminding them. And I love this part. He says, and such were some of you. He listed those ten sins. And then he says, And such were some of you. You used to be some of these things. The Corinthian church, like churches today, had ex-fornicators. They had ex-homosexuals. They had ex-adulterers, ex-drunkards. And even though a lot of Christians have never committed any of the sins mentioned in verses 9 and 10, every Christian, every one of us was an ex-sinner. Every one of us. Every Christian was sinful before he was saved, and and every Christian is an ex-sinner. 
And you know, in, in looking at these sins, you know, starting with the first one and numbering that, they weren't done in order or in the order of, 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 of immoral, you know, the most immoral. There's, God does not list sins as little ones and big ones. A sin is a sin to God. All sin is judged and all sin is, is condemned. And, 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 you know, we're the ones who put them in the little categories. Oh, well, that's not a bad one. That's not really bad. It's no big deal. And no, they're a big deal to God. Sin is sin. Now, depending on what the sin is, the consequence, consequences might be greater. They might be costlier. But none the same. But all the same. They're, they're, they're going to be judged by God. They're condemned by God. And so that's what we need to understand. There's no big or little sins. Sin is sin to God. But like I said, some sins may have greater or lesser consequences in the sinner's life due to the nature of the sin. All sin is condemned and all sin will be judged. Paul does not accuse all of the Corinthians, though, of doing all of these sins mentioned in verses 10 and 11. Instead, he reminds them that such were some of you. Now, the word translated such literally means these things. In other words, these things were some of you. And some of them had been involved in these sins in the past, in their, in their past life. But something wonderful happened. They had experienced a radical change through an intimate and continual relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the antidote for all sin. An intimate and ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. The use of the word but three times in verse 11 emphasizes the difference between their present life in Christ and their past life of sin. These people had known a religious experience that Paul describes here. He says, first of all, he says, but you were washed. Some, some, such were some of you, but you were washed. That is, they're spiritually clean. This speaks of, the, of new life. It speaks of the regenerated life. Jesus didn't save us based on anything that we did. Jesus did not save us on any righteousness that we did. But he saved us according to his mercy, his righteousness, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is God's work. It's God's work of making us new creatures, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians 2.10. And when a person is washed and cleaned by Jesus Christ, he's born again. Born again. Secondly, Paul says, but you were just, you were sanctified. You were sanctified. That is, you were set apart for God. Sanctified speaks of a new behavior, and it's a process that goes on every day. I'm being sanctified every day. The work goes on every day of my life. You were set apart. Sanctified, again, speaks of new behavior. To be sanctified is to be made holy on the inside and enabled by the Holy Spirit to live a righteous life on the outside. So before a person is saved, he has no holy nature. Therefore, he has no ability to live a holy life. That's why when a person wants to live a holy life or, or you know, wants to change their life or make their life better, uh, they'll start out, but they can't do it. 
Because they don't have a holy nature. It's not something they can do in their own power or in their own strength. They do not have an ability to live a holy life. But when Jesus Christ comes into a life, that person is given a new nature. And then they can live out the new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin's control and sin's power is totally broken when Christ comes into a life. And that life is replaced by a life of holiness. And by their fleshly sinfulness, the Corinthians were interrupting that divine work. And that's why Paul jumped on it right away. Paul says then, but you were justified. That means declared righteous by God in Christ. The word justified speaks of of a new standing before God. And you can look at justified as as meaning just if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. It speaks of a new standing before God. In Christ, we are clothed in His righteousness. See, it's Christ's righteousness that's accounted unto us. And now God sees us in Christ righteous. It's His righteousness, and it's not our sin that God sees Christ's righteousness is charged to our account. We're declared and we're made righteous because of our new nature, because of Christ. We're counted as holy, innocent, and not guilty anymore because God justifies the one who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. To justify means to declare one just or right. We've been declared just or right. And because they've been set apart to serve God, they're righteous before God. And this kind of sanctification and justification, it is the work of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. Each of these three words, washed, sanctified, and justified, is a strong reminder of the past experience of the Corinthians. They experienced dramatic conversions. But now, it would really be awful if they went back to their old way of living. And that's always a sad thing. When a person experiences a a time of Christ, a life with Christ, and and, for some reason they end up going back to the old way of living. Jesus came for the purpose of saving sinners. And that's the wonderful truth, the great truth of Christianity. And the wonderful thing for us to know is that no person has sinned too deeply or too long that they can't be saved. There's no sin so ugly or or so, whatever it is or how long they've sinned or whatever they've done in their past, there's not too much for God to to, to save them. God can save. God can save. Reason is, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But some had stopped being like that for a while. They had ceased to be like that for a and they had gone back to their old ways. Look at verses 12 through 14 now. <clears throat> Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach 
and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise, up, uh, raise us up by his power. It seems that the church had been quoting and misapplying Paul's words here that all things are lawful for me. They were, misapp- they were misapplying these words to mean I can do anything I want. And I've heard people say the same thing. You know, they claim to be a Christian, yet they're living in sin and say, well, you know, and I've talked to them and say, hey, well, you know, you, you can't live in, this, in sin. You can't. Well, they said, well, Jesus died for all of my sins. I said, that's true. But that's confessed sin. That's forsaken sin. You know, he didn't die for your sin. And then now that you can, you can live in that sin. No, it, it, it you were saved from your sin, not in your sin. That's an important thing to remember. Some Christians were excusing their sins, saying Jesus has taken away all of my sin, so that they, they felt they had total freedom to live as they wanted, to do whatever they wanted. You know, and what they were doing was, was and they felt that what they were doing wasn't strictly forbidden by the Word of God. But Paul answered both excuses. First, he said, yes, Jesus has taken away our sins. But he says, this doesn't give us freedom to go on doing what we know is wrong. And the New Testament specifically forbids many sins that were originally forbidden in the Old Testament. And something to remember as well. Some people say, well, Jesus didn't speak about this sin in the New Testament. He never condemned this sin in the New Testament. So it must be okay. Remember, Jesus said, I did not come to, dis- to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. That means whatever the law said, he said, I came to fulfill it. He was in agreement with it. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. So there are things mentioned in, in maybe in the, in the New Testament, but it does not mean, or aren't mentioned, but it does not mean that, that they're lawful. It doesn't mean they can be carried on. So again, um, sometimes this, this liberty can become a snare because we don't understand what, it, what, what the scripture is saying. So again, yeah, the, they were doing what was not, uh, they felt was not strictly forbidden by, uh, forbidden by scripture. So, again, Jesus did take away our sins, but again, doesn't give us the freedom to do what we want when we know it's wrong. Some actions, he said, secondly here, some actions are not sinful in in themselves, but they're not right because they can control our our life. That's what he said in verse 12. Notice, all things are lawful for me, but, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And that's the that's the danger. Because you see, some sins or, or some things can, can, can control our life and lead us away from God. And some of those actions might hurt other people. Anything we do that hurts other people uh, rather than helps them isn't right. So you see, liberty becomes a snare when it weakens characters or spiritual strength or it reduces uh, our, the effectiveness of our Christian witness. 
And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul uses the normal appetites of eating and sex to illustrate the nature of liberty. Now, to show the nature of Christian liberty, Paul spoke of one of the most common of all practices, eating. He writes here, notice, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. And foods in the stomach were created by God for each other. The relationship is totally natural. So, the Corinthians were probably using this same truth as a comparison to justify sexual immorality. They probably got the idea that sex is no different than eating. The stomach was made for food and the body was made for sex. But the body can't live without food, but it can live without indulging in sex. But Paul emphasizes, it's true. Food and the stomach were made for each other. But that's where the similarity ends. And that relationship is just temporary. One day. When their purpose has been fulfilled, God was going to do away with both of them. That normal process has no place in eternity. But that's not the case with the body itself. The bodies of the believers are designed by God for much more than bodily functions. The body is not for immorality. It's for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. The body is to be used as an instrument of the Lord. For his glory, for his good, for his use. Now, God has not only raised Christ, but it says here, but he will also raise us up through his power. Our bodies are designed not only to serve in this life, but in eternity as well. But they will be changed bodies. They will be resurrected bodies. They will be glorified bodies. They will be heavenly bodies. And they belong to God forever. Paul said in Philippians 3, 20 through 21, he said, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Our body will be like his body in heaven. Jesus is to be Lord over our total being, all that we are. And even though it's hard to understand sometimes, the Lordship of Jesus is meant for and best for the body. And to help the Corinthians in their struggle to develop holy character, Paul said that the resurrection of Jesus points to the resurrection of the body. Look at verse 14. He says, And God and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The same divine power that resurrected Jesus will also resurrect the body, our body. Jesus raising from the dead and coming And the coming resurrection of God's people are the greatest demonstration of God's power. Verses 15 through 18 now. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? And for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. And then he says in 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality because every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So here's Paul's warning against fornication. This teaching about sexual immorality and prostitutes was especially important for the Corinthian church because the temple of the love goddess Aphrodite was in Corinth. 
And this temple employed more than 1,000 prostitutes as priestesses, and sex was part of the worship ritual. So Paul clearly said, hey, Christians are not to have any part in sexual immorality, even if it's acceptable and popular in our culture. And that goes with anything that is not biblical. It doesn't matter if culture is, the culture is doing it and society says it's okay and, 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 it's, and it's, you know, it, it seems to be the thing. Hey, if God says no, it's no. We're not to have any part of it. Christians are free to be all that they can be for God. All right, but they're not free from God. God created sex. He created it to be a beautiful and essential ingredient of marriage. But sexual sin, which is sex outside the marriage relationship, it always hurts somebody. Always. And I'm going to speak more about that when we get to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians here. It hurts God. It hurts God. Because it disobeys the commitment that's so important to a marriage relationship. Not only that, it can bring disease to our bodies. And it affects our whole personality. And sometimes it's, it's, it responds in torment when we harm ourselves physically and spiritually. Closing with verses 19 through 20. Closing now with verses 19 through 20. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God and who and, and you are not your own for you were bought at a price therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's the christian body is a sanctuary a sanctuary now <clears throat> you can look at your body in in many different ways you might pamper it you might even idolize it you know you might Treat it like a machine for work. You might use it uh, for leverage to, to gain power or wealth. You can give it carnal pleasures. You can use it as an, as an instrument of wickedness. Or, like Paul, you can look at it and treat it like a temple. And you can use it for God's glory. Jesus referred to his body as a temple in, in John 2, verses 19 through 21. Paul also referred to the logical congregation, the local congregation, as a temple. The Jews looked at the temple as the special residence of God. So the body as a temple becomes a special place of residence for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in a temple, it belongs to God. That's why Paul says, you are not your own. Because the Christian has entered into a covenant, a blood covenant. Signed, you signed a deed and you turned over possession to God. You said, Lord, here I am. I am yours to do with as you please. The Holy Spirit living inside is a gift from a holy God. And he can't live in a polluted sanctuary. That's why it's so important how we take care of these bodies. The Holy Spirit dwells in this body. It's his temple. But he can't live in a polluted temple, a filthy temple. What did Paul mean when he said that our body belongs to God? Well, a lot of people think and say they have the right to do what they want with their bodies. We're hearing that a lot right now. 
My body, I can do what I want with it. Even though they think that this is, this is freedom, they're really slaves to their own desires. When we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. So we no longer own our bodies. Paul said here, God bought us at a price. He bought us. He bought us with his precious blood. This and when it says bought us at a price, it refers to slaves that were purchased at an auction. So Christ's death freed us from sin, but it also obligates us to serve him. If you live in a building owned by someone else, you try to, you try to, uh, you, you don't, you don't try to disobey the building rules. You obey what the, the building rules are. And because your body belongs to God, you must not violate God's standards for living. So both body and spirit belong to the Lord. So in work, in motive, in conduct, and in response, uh, the, the Christian is to glorify his maker and and his Redeemer with his body. I am to use this temple for the work of God, for the glory of God. And, to not, and not to use it for things that are displeasing to God or sinful. Things that would disqualify me. So it's important to understand that we are the temple of God. And it must remain healthy and pure as much as, as we have to do with it. So that again, we can honor God in these bodies. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we come before you and thank you, God. And again, the sins that were listed here, Father, that was not... Father, they, they were, again, just the sins that were particular to the church at that time. But again, those sins, even in our time, God, all sin, whether it was in the Old Testament, whether it was during Paul's day or our day, God, sin is sin. And Jesus died for that sin, past, present, and future. But it's sin that must be confessed and must be forsaken. For the sinner cannot live in the house of God and also uh, have, have a, a stained temple, Lord. So, Father, may we look to, look to you, God. May we look at ourselves. May we examine our lives. As, as the psalmist said, may we search our heart. Lord, search our heart and show us if there's any wicked way in us. Show us, Father, if there's anything that we're doing that displeases you. That, that, that tarnishes this temple, that corrupts this temple, God. So that, Father, we may live for you. And that, Father, we may be a, a witness to others, God. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, beautiful example here that Paul has given us. Father, we thank you for the offering that we will receive today, God. We ask that it would bring glory and honor to your name. And we thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, tonight we will continue now in our study on Song of Solomon. We're going to be looking at chapter 4 verses, uh, chapter 4 through 5, verse 1, and it's the wedding night. So Solomon and Bathsheba are going to experience their wedding night tonight. And um, 
Again, for those that, that will come, and if you're bringing young people, I would rate it PG-13. It's not vulgar, it's not, but there, it's, there is sexual content, and um, it's, again, it's, it's done in a biblical way. But again, uh, you know your children, if you, you, know, you feel uncomfortable about them hearing some of the things, read the chapter and, and, and you can see yourself. But again, um, it, it, it's the Shulamite woman and King Solomon. This is what they've been looking for. And again, uh, so it's the wedding night. So pray and um, just, uh, you, you know your children better than anybody else. So again, um, song cha- a song, a song in chapter four through chapter five, verse one. God bless you guys.